And we are back. It's just me today. Um, welcome to the podcast, All Things Wicked and Vile. Um, Sav could not be here today. Uh, she had some other things going on, so I'm just going to be doing this one solo. Don't really have much business to attend to, but this is going to be a really interesting case, you all. It's going to be pretty long, so it's maybe a little bit more extended. I would consider this more of a deep dive. And I am super, super excited about it. So I hope you guys enjoy. Um, follow us on the social medias and tell 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 us tell your friends about us. I cannot talk today. Um, if it gets too long, I may split this up into two parts, but I doubt it. I think you all would probably just like the closure to get it all taken care of in one episode. I don't want to make you guys wait too long, so it's meant to be an extra long one. Um, this is a local local case. For me, um, and for Sav, it's from Bowling Green, Kentucky, about three hours away from us. I don't know if you guys know where Bowling Green is or if you've ever heard of it, but it's it's pretty, I don't really know what the population is, but it's pretty. It's a pretty large town for Kentucky standards, not as big as like Louisville or Lexington or Frankfurt, like not those sizes, but still relatively large for this area, considering me and Savannah come from a town of about like 5,000 people, so you know. It's it's pretty big. Um, so this is the Cemetery Road Murders. I got a lot of informa- information from this great book by a Kentucky author. Uh, the book is titled The Cemetery Road Murders, and it's by Wes Sweeting. I will be reading several passages from the book um, towards the end because I feel like he just makes it sound so good. He's way more eloquent than I am about some of these things. Um, the guy that wrote it actually is the da- the editor of the one of the one of the news stations in um or the newspaper places in Bowling Green. Uh, let's see. I was going to talk about this one a moment. You know, it's not really that important to the story. So, we're going to take you all the way back to February 28th in 1923 in Glasgow, Kentucky, which for those of you that are not familiar, um, Bowling Green and Glasgow are pretty close together, about 45 minutes apart. Glasgow is way smaller and it's basically BFE. That's what I would describe it as. There's a lot of Amish and cows and all that fun stuff. Um, so, in Bowling Green is where the murders occurred, but um, Glasgow is where Harry Edward Kilgore was born. He liked to go by Edward even as a child, so we refer to him as Edward from here on out. His parents were Reed and Ella Kilgore. His father was a prominent mail carrier with a famous mail buggy. It was said that he had traveled 128,000 miles on his buggy carrying mail. Right after Edward was born, a car crashed into Reed's buggy. Reed was not physically injured, but his mental health suffered. He ended up committing suicide when his son was very young. Apparently, Edward's mother, Ella Kilgore, showed very little emotion to her husband taking his own life. She was cited as making a comment to not cut the rope that he hung himself with because it was her well rope. She later denied making this comment, but it was still kind of creepy. Um, Edward had a fairly normal childhood otherwise. His mother remarried to a man named Millard Sharp. That marriage didn't last very long, and the Kilgores were struggling to make ends meet, so Ella would take in boarders. Uh, I'm kind of out of breath. Edward went to school in Glasgow, Kentucky, and enjoyed playing baseball in the sandlot on weekends. What's really kind of sad, though, is that Edward would go to the cemetery late at night to sit at his dad's grave and try to talk to him. But I'll say it once, I'll say it again. Feel sorry for the child and not the person who murdered innocents. Edward would go on to be around 6 feet tall and 150 pounds. He is described as lanky, with blue eyes and angular features. According to the book, he was also described as being wistfully-eyed, brilliant, moody, and eccentric. He graduated Glasgow High School in 1941, and then he just kind of randomly went to Los Angeles. He went presumably for work, but that was really never confirmed. 
Edward started having some strange sensations and urges while living in Los Angeles. Quote, I recall walking the streets and I was just walking along in the bright daylight and the high buildings around me and people, people everywhere. And sometimes I seem to have a tendency to want to destroy a person. No particular person, Kilgore said. It was a vague feeling and far away and something that just walks along the side of you. And that was the first time I was conscious of that. So that's super creepy, right? He didn't stay in L.A. for very long and returned to Kentucky in 1942. Then promptly joined the Navy Reserve when he was 19 as a radio technician. He only spent about a month there and was discharged. The reason for his discharge was, quote, plan and procedure for elimination of recruits unfit for service and reason of psychiatric and neurological handicaps. The latter part, a euphemism for being gay. Um, so, we, it, what he claims that he was, he liked women, but he also liked men as well. Uh, we'll kind of see that a little bit more later. He will go on to say that there was only one woman that he truly loved, but there was also some, a man that he was really that he was very close to. So I'm not really sure if he would be considered homosexual or if he would be considered like bisexual or something like that. It's, it's kind of iffy. I'll let you guys make your own decisions about this. Naturally, Edward was very upset about being discharged and returned to Kentucky to work in a military cargo plane manufacturing company. He then went to college to study physics with a minor in math. He worked as an assistant physics lab instructor and also joined a theater group. He just pretty much did it all. And the theater stuff will definitely come up later because he does have a, a penchant for the, the theater in some of his um, later doings and writings. Um, he still managed to continue his hobby of walking through literal graveyards at night, which is fine. A little weird, but fine. In 1947, Edward met Lena Faye McKinney at Western Kentucky State Teachers College, which is now known as Western Kentucky University. He asked her out, and they went to a party at a mutual friend's house. Lena was a little cold because she only went with Edward because she was interested in another boy at the party. She brought her sister, Ruth McKinney, along to keep Edward company at the party while Lena went to woo this other boy. Ruth and Edward then started dating uh, for a very short time. Ruth was pretty gorgeous and had like a long list of boys that was really interested in her. And she was from a, a family of farmers, and they moved to a mile outside of Bowling Green to live in a little white house. Living just down the road from the McKinney's were the doctor and Mrs. Charles Benjamin Martin. He and his wife, Martha, um, uh, Charles or Dr. Martin was 82, and Martha Martin was 71 years old. And their 52-year-old son, Stonewall Jackson Martin, commonly known as Stoney, was his nickname, lived in a pretty much a mansion compared to the modest McKinney home. It was a large colonial brick that was built in 1856 by a wealthy merchant um, and a farmer named James Finnis Ewing. Charles and Martha bought the home in 1918 and subsequently added a wing to the house, eight Greek columns to the front, a balcony, and a lot of land, and they kept on adding land. The, all in all, they owned around 325 acres and hired live-in farmers to tend to fields and an animal's lodge on the farm. Dr. Martin was from Old Rocky Hill in Barron County, which is basically the Glasgow area, which was a farming town. Uh, apparently, that town was known for producing the first Kentucky-made rifles in the 1800s. In 1890, Dr. Martin went on to practice medicine in Oklahoma and married Martha. She was 18 and he was 29. Martha was a quarter Native American and was attending a Chickasaw school for girls in Indian Territory. After two years of marriage, Stonewall Jackson Martin, who's named after Dr. Martin's brother, was born. In 1907, the Martins moved from Oklahoma to Bowling Green. Um, Dr. Martin would go on to practice medicine in Bowling Green with his brother and then retired to be a gentleman and farmer in 1908. Stoney, their son, was very kind and a little bit of a hermit. He had a curvature of his spine, probably scoliosis from the description, but I can't be too sure. He was very sickly. He had a lot of health issues. He had tried to run for Warren County Clerk in 1933, but it didn't work out, presumably because of a disability. 
The disability and also a large age gap, like over 30 years, caused some chatter when he announced his engagement to, drumroll please, Ruth McKinney. They were married in 1948 and were planning on living in the Cemetery Road home. Even hired a painter to clean up the house in preparation for their return from their honeymoon. They were on their way to Siloam Springs, Arkansas, when on June 30th, 1948, their trip was cut short. And that's where our story truly begins. It was early morning on Wednesday, June 30th, 1948, at the Martin residence. A man named J.F. Hunt was dropping off a $112.29 milk check for the Martins because he worked for a company that bought milk for the Martins' cows. That was around 5 a.m. when Mr. Hunt placed the check on the back porch on top of a fridge. Around 6.30 a.m., little Elsie Ray Hood, who was 14 years old, went to the Martins' house to get the pails that her and her father used to milk the Martins' cows for her family. She noticed something unusual, but that the pails were untouched. Martha, who was affectionately known as Mrs. Mart, was usually up before then and had been using the pails to get their milk for the day. Around the same time, Pauline and Christine Hood, who were 11 years old, were also going up to the Martin residence to get their family part, family's part of the Martin's milk check. They ended up going back home shortly, though, because they could not find the Martins or the milk check, as it was on top of the fridge, and the twins were only 11 years old. Then, around 7 a.m., Joe Emerson approached the Martin house. Uh, he was the painter that was hired by Stoney and Ruth. He was able to get into the house through the back door and then venture into the kitchen to retrieve a key to the smokehouse because the painting supplies were kept there by the Martins. He was calling for the Martins, but received no response. He thought they were asleep, so he went to the smokehouse and found that a can of white paint was missing. Dr. Martin had promised Mr. Emerson that he would get him a can of white paint to paint the house with, so he made his way back to the house to talk to Dr. Martin and also ran to the twins' father, Mr. Hood. He was searching for the milk check. Mr. Emerson then went back into the house, and still there was no response from the Martins. Everything else was in order. Nothing was out of place downstairs. Then Mr. Emerson went to the end of the hall. He approached the Martins' bedroom, and the door was ajar. The window shades were drawn when he entered the room. Mr. Emerson's eyes adjusted. He noticed that Dr. Martin was on the floor. He was on his back with his knees drawn up. Martha was laying face down on the bed. When Mr. Emerson got closer, he noticed that there was blood on the floor, the bed, and the wall. Mr. Emerson then rightly started to panic, but he did have the the um the strength to check dr mr martin for a pulse um the emotional strength i guess i should say both were stiff and cold because rigor mortis had already set in mr emerson then ran out of the house and told mr hood what had occurred mr hood thought the perpetrator was close by or still in the house so he ran out of the house and ran into herschel bright who was another neighbor then both men returned to the house to call the police to the martin residence now this time was around 7 a.m um, among the first to arrive at the scene was Bowling Green Police Chief Morrell Waddell and Warren County Sheriff J. Boldly Davenport. They described the scene as being very gory and disturbing. Um, quote, Upon examining the bodies, the men at first assumed that the Martins, still in their nightclothes, had been hacked to death with an axe because of the amount of blood and the clear lacerations on the head of Dr. Martin. Some national newspapers that had gone to press before more details were available reported that day that the Martins were the victims of an axe-wielding maniac. Upon further examination, Dr. Martin had a bloody, dark blue piece of ribbon in his hand. It looked curiously like a hat band from a fedora. Fedoras were pretty much high fashion at the time, so it, he, it could have been that he just like grabbed the, the piece of ribbon, the hat band, off the fedora of his attacker. Um, but why would you wear a fedora when you're attacking someone? I don't know. He held it in his right hand, which is a definite clue to what happened here. The Martins were transported to Coroner Chester Basham, who determined that the Martins had actually been shot from a large caliber gun, which could explain the amount of blood found at the scene. 
Dr. Martin had been shot a total of three times, once in the left cheek, once through the right side of his neck, right below his ear, and through his right temple. Barth had only been shot once through the back of, his, through the back of her head. Dr. Martin also sustained some superficial cuts and abrasions and contusions to various areas on his body. And like I said before, full rigor mortis had set in the coroner determined time of death between 1 and 2 a.m. Back at the crime scene, tiny bits of sand are found everywhere, which was kind of strange. Along with the sand, they found pieces of broken glass where the Dr. Martin was found. Investigators found the front latch of the door had been broken off, so this was the front door and the latch had been basically busted off. Um, so there was evidence of forced entry to the home. There's also a bullet hole in the front door. The screen door was determined to have been open when the shot was fired because the screen door was not damaged. The bullet ended up going into the baseboard of the front stairway and it was from a 32 caliber gun and they were able to find the shell. Obviously, the media took this and ran with it. It's a very small area at the time, so news travels fast. It spread like wildfire throughout the area. When the, when the area around the Martins residence was canvassed, a few of the neighbors reported some weird happenings that morning. One neighbor reported a woman shouting and that it came from the Martin residence. Another reported the Martin dog barking and a car starting. The most useful report came from another neighbor who's driving on Cemetery Road around the time of the murder. But he was innocent, so don't even worry about that. He saw a vehicle parked in an open field near the Martin home. Here's a quote from his report. Quote, the lights were out, and as I passed, I caught a glimpse of a figure in the front seat, he said. But I can't be sure if there was anybody else in the car. I remember thinking some young couple were spinning. There was a lover's lane near the Martin's home, so that was not too unusual for young people to be hiding in that area. There were no gunshots reported, but all the reports seemed to line up with the time of death. The other thing the investigators noted that there was that there was nothing stolen. Dr. Martin still hung on a very expensive watch, and Mrs. Martin had her, gold, had her gold wedding ring on. They were also confused as to why the door was shot there, and someone didn't try to bust the door open before shooting the door. Also, the milk check was untouched. I mean, obviously, like, the, the crime happened well before the milk check was put on top of the fridge. But at this point, like, they were still trying to figure out, you know, the time of death. But none of them, none, no money was disturbed. Nothing was stolen. Um, obviously, there was a struggle. Um, and I will go... Going back to the whole money thing, that will kind of come up later. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Nothing was stolen, but that could possibly come up as a motive later, which won't make a whole lot of sense, but it, it hopefully it will as we go along. So obviously there was a struggle. Um, they thought this was a hat band, that dark blue ribbon that was removed. Um, they thought it was a hat band. Um, the glass could have been from the watch of the attacker, and the sand could be the mark of a seasoned criminal, because um, apparently sandbags were used at the time as a weapon or tool of um, experienced burglars. After some more canvassing, a few witnesses say that they had overheard that there was a young man upset about Stonewall and Ruth's marriage. So investigators went to Ruth's father, whose name is E.D. McKinney, to get a list of her previous suitors. It was a pretty long list. It was about 17 men that E.D. McKinney um, wrote on his list, but there were only two on the list that the police were not able to find. They did find the other one, he was cleared, but one of the other young men on the list that apparently left the area was Harry Edward Kilgore. Surprise, surprise. Mr. McKinney told investigators that Ruth had dated Edward for a short time and was at the Martin residence several times awaiting the return of Ruth and Sonny from their honeymoon. He had pretty much showed up randomly to the McKinney home one day. Uh, well, he showed up to the Martin home first and saw a bunch of lights in the and thought that something had bad had happened to Earth and Stony, and that they had come back from their honeymoon. But the McKinneys assured him that everything was okay and they were still on their honeymoon. They didn't think it was too unusual for Edward to be showing up so much and showing so much concern because he was on good terms with the McKinney family. Something else that was odd about Edward's appearance was that he had lost a lot of weight and was looking very sickly, but when his mother asked him to go see a doctor, he refused. 
They immediately went to Western um, University where he was living in a dorm. The landlady reported that he had left Tuesday and hadn't returned yet. Everything in his room was meticulously arranged. They did find two fedoras, but neither was missing a hat band. They also found a bunch of used textbooks and a large supply of canned V8 juice in addition to a brand new hatchet. Very odd, and some of this will come up again later. Warren County Deputy Sheriff Charles Ashworth and Bowling Green Police Department Officer Curtis Henderson were traveling to Glasgow to visit Ella Kilgore, Edward's mother. When they arrived, Ella said that she wasn't there, or that he wasn't there. While they were speaking to her, a car started backing out of the driveway at the side of the home. Who was the driver, you may ask? Well, none other than Harry Edward Kilgore. The officers asked Edward if he had seen Ruth, and he replied that he hadn't since she got married. He denied knowing anything about the murders. They had asked him to step out of the car and the Henderson, Henderson side to inspect the Oldsmobile. After a brief inspection, he approached Ashworth and Edward with a couple of incriminating items. There were two flashlights, one with a massive dent. It also looked to have dried blood and matted hair on it. Some of the glass in the lens of the flashlight was also missing. He also found a skeleton key, a knife, boots, a thermos top, a woman's purse, four thirty-two caliber shells, and some wire. Not looking pretty good for Edward right now. They decided to take him back to Bowling Green for questioning, which was a wise move on their part, in my opinion. Edward told them that he had spent the night at a friend's house who was a music professor at Western. He said that he had stayed there until daybreak, then driven to Glasgow. He continued to deny any knowledge of the murders. When they kept on asking him, Edward replied that he had read in some detective magazines that he didn't have to talk to them. It was there that William H. Natcher met Harry Edward Kilgore because I actually took him to his office. Now, Natcher was the county attorney in Warren County at the time. Uh, Natcher is well-known in Kentucky, even has a highway named after him and a couple other things. Um, he was a Democratic congressman and super famous in this area. Um, again, he was the county attorney, so he was a prosecutor in this case. Well, it was the Commonwealth attorney because the difference between county and Commonwealth, a like, county just does like regular lower-level court stuff like traffic court or like just district court, like misdemeanor court. Commonwealth attorney, since since Kentucky is a commonwealth, they typically do with like circuit court cases, but Natcher was the one that ended up interviewing um, Edward because he had a pretty good rapport with people. So I'm going to read you another quote from the book. Quote, Kilgore was taken to Natcher's office in downtown Bowling Green. Outside, large crowds soon gathered as the news of the suspect's whereabouts quickly spread. The pressure was on, Natcher wrote years later in his journal. Newspaper reporters from all over were converging at Bowling Green, and the radios were blaring forth the news of his horrible crimes. Kilgore at first refused to answer questions from the simple law enforcement officers. I expected no cooperation whatsoever from Kilgore and anticipated much trouble in obtaining any statement from him, Natcher wrote. He had been described to me over the telephone as a brilliant boy, very peculiar and very moody. In the presence of the chief of police and sheriff and one or two more other officers, this boy simply sat in the chair and looked at me and answered no questions. That's when Natcher, who had a natural talent for connecting with people, decided to interrogate the young man alone. After the police left, Natcher told Kilgore that if he committed the crime, he would inevitably find out. So the young man might as well confess. Kilgore paused for moments. He said quality, quietly, Mr. Natcher, I killed Dr. and Mrs. Martin. I almost fell over because I certainly did not expect a confession so quickly. Natcher later wrote, um, A little afternoon, Kilgore signed a detailed statement regarding um, what had happened just hours earlier on Cemetery Road. Whether at home, at work, or at a restaurant or bar, area residents were waiting for the latest radio bulletin to give them an update. And at 12.35 p.m., regular programming was interrupted for a special bulletin. Kilgore had confessed. So I'm going to read you, like the book actually has the written statement of Harry Edward Kilgore. And I'm going to read this to you all because I found it super interesting. 
My name is Harry Edward Kilgore. I am 25 years of age. I live at 1126 State Street in Bowling Green, Kentucky, in the home of Mrs. Atkinson. I have lived there for about two years, and during this period, I have been attending school at Western Kentucky State Teachers College. I killed Mr. C.B. Martin and his wife, Mrs. C.B. Martin, at their home located on the cemetery road after midnight and early in the morning of June 30, 1948. I drove my sister's automobile to the Martin home. Two days ago, when I came to Bowling Green from Glasgow, I drove my sister's automobile, which is an Oldsmobile, and after leaving the, the home of Dr. Martin, I then drove east out of the cemetery road out the, to the intersection of Lover's Lane, and I then th drove around Lover's Lane to the Scottsville Road. I came on down Broadway, following the street around until I got out to 31 West, and I crossed the new bridge, and I threw the gun in the river. I had a little bag of sand that I tossed into the river. I did not want to hurt them, so I had that alone to strike the blow upon their head. I think I hit Mr. Martin in the head with the bag of sand while he was in bed. The pistol that I threw in the river, I do not know what caliber. I got the pistol sometime back. I worked in Louisville at Curtis Wright from 1943 to 1945 until I started to school here in Bowling Green. I got the pistol while I was working at Curtis Wright in Louisville, and I've had the pistol ever since. I tossed the pistol and the sandbag off the new bridge on the left-hand side driving toward Glasgow. It sure is painful to get these words out. I thought I would go up the front way, but the dog barked. So I came back down and drove the car back out, which was just slightly up in the front yard, back out into the road. I proceeded to the gate on the left-hand side of the house. I drove the car inside till I came to a tree that sits out in the middle of the field. This tree is in a grain field, and then I stepped out of the car. I went to a barn across the fence. I proceeded toward the house, reaching the house from behind. So as I figured the dog would be in front, it would not bother me, which he was. So I looked around the house to see what door I could enter. I entered with the side door in the back. The screen was hooked. I took a wire and punched a hole and pushed the lock up. I entered the house from that door and went to the house, and this was dark. I do not know just how I went through the house. I did not know where they were. I was just wandering around. I went too far. I saw a light and figured it must be the front door. I stepped outside the front door on the front porch to see what things looked out looked like out there. Somebody ran up behind me. This was Dr. Martin. He slammed the door. This was the front door. I became excited all of a sudden. I lunged across the front door and became panicky, and the gun went off. Well, I went running back in there into the room where Mrs. Martin was, and this was the bedroom, and they were both in there. I was scared. I had a piece of ribbon with me, and I thought I would tie them up with it, but he would not be still. Mrs. Martin lay back on the bed, and she would be still, but he would not be still. He started fighting with me. I wanted to tie him up in the scuffle, but he started yelling, so my mind just left me. I remember shooting, and I shot a lot. Mrs. Martin was on the bed when I was shooting. I was scuffling with him on the bed, and I shoved him on the bed and shot at him. All of a sudden, I realized what I had done. I ran out the back door and went around to the back and went out directly to the car across the fence. I ran to the car, backed it out back from the tree in the field to the cemetery road and left. I had been so disappointed all my life with relations with girls. I knew that Stoney Martin and Ruth McKinney, who were married last week, were gone. I had been going through McKinney for several months, and I do not think it was quite a year. She liked Stoney Martin, the, doc the son of Dr. C.B. Martin. I went out to Dr. Martin's home because I had missed her so. The Martins had all that money, and I know that the boy must have enticed Ruth to marry him. He, she is a beautiful girl. I loved her. I seem to be confused. It all ties in. It goes back so far. I asked Faye McKinney for a date one night, and she is the sister of Ruth McKinney. She accepted, and when I went out there, she got Ruth to go along, and we went to a friend of Faye's. It turned out that Faye had just asked me along. When she got there, it was in, she was interested in some other guy, and she was not my date. That was how I met Ruth. She took Ruth along to get away from me. After this, I went with Ruth for several months. I had been going out to the house. Mrs. McKinney let me come out there, and I had been going with Ruth for several months. I had not had a date with her in some for a long time. I do not know how long it had been since I had a date with Ruth. I never knew d definitely until sometime this month that Ruth was going to marry Martin. 
I talked to Ruth after I found out about this. I'd seen her out there at various times. I tried to get her not to marry him, but she would not never. But she never would discuss it with me. I changed clothes at my mother's at Glasgow when I returned this morning from Bowling Green. My mother lives in Glasgow on Leslie Avenue at 303. I was wearing brown trousers and a shirt with a little brown stripe and a little blue stripe, sort of check-like. This is my sports shirt. I had on a pair of rubbers. The rivers were over my shoes. The clothes are in my room at my mother's. I have never seen Stoney Martin in my life to talk to him. I saw him once upon the square, and that was the only time. I had never seen Dr. Martin and his wife before. I fired all the shots out of the pistol. I threw the pistol on the sandbag pretty hard off the side of the bridge. The sandbag was made of some old socks. I do not know how many times I hit them with the sandbag. I had a flash of that woman when I went to the house. So, pretty interesting stuff, right? Um, and his written statement actually matched up a testimony from several witnesses. So he was arrested pending his arraignment. He seemed right at home in jail, enjoying a diet of canned corn, like straight from the can, and canned vegetable juice. But there was only one problem. Kilgore seemed to be legally insane, so it would be up to the prosecution to see if he was competent enough to stand trial. Now, the book describes different methods by which states use to determine insanity. For those of you that don't know, insanity is actually a legal term, not a psychological term. So, in 1948 in Kentucky, the courts used the Manhattan Rule. The rule is named out for a Scottish woodcutter who shot and killed a British police, po- or, excuse me, British politician and was found not guilty because he was not of sound mind. To be found not, gu- not guilty under the Manhattan Rule, the accused must be found because of some mental detriment to not understand right and, right and wrong or the consequences of their actions. This was well argued by Rhodes Kirby Myers, a very competent defense attorney that was hired by Ella Kilgore to, to defend her son. A lot of people felt sorry for anyone who was cross-examined by Myers because he was well-known and highly intelligent. Um, the, one of the first things that Myers did was file a motion of Edward undergo a psyche bell. When Edward was first arrested, he was observed by three local practitioners. Then, Dr. William F. Orr assembled a team at the judge's behest to examine Edward. The group of seven doctors questioned and examined Edward for several hours and came up with a five-page report. They reported that he was friendly and cooperative, he answered all of their questions, and only showed enthusiasm in his facial expressions on one occasion. They also know that he had, a strange, had strange positions that he would sit in. He would often look upward with his eyes closed and cup his hands somewhat. When they brought up Ruth, his demeanor seemed to change. He would sit in silence like he was in ecstasy. He brought up that he didn't date around much. Quote, he had difficulty understanding why girls would not show him affection, stating that he had frequently asked them what was wrong with his personality. He showed throughout the examination a tendency to disregard the gravity of his position, seemed to be more concerned with the fact that he had been unable to get along with people, especially girls, seemed almost completely unaware of the fact that he was in an extremely serious situation. These issues spanned throughout his childhood, and they also noted his peculiar penchant for eating canned food straight out of the can. The doctors found that strange, which I completely understand. They also brought out the fact that he may be gay because he didn't show a lot of sexual interest in women. And he had he reported to them that he had several homosexual experiences in California when he lived in L.A. At the time, homosexuality was thought to be a mental disorder. When they asked him about his interest in physics, his demeanor changed again. He showed a lot more interest in the subject. Kilgore said that he believed in the forces of the universe were affecting his life in unseen ways, and that around the same time, his disappointment in his lack of relationship with the girls was peaking. He'd also, quote, lost his sincere faith in God. He now such as God with the purely physical phenomena. And that was from the book. The doctors determined that he showed a, quote, inability to judge reality when it came to the Martin murders. Quote, he was confused at the time. They had no idea what was going to occur when he entered that house, but he had a feeling he ought to be there. 
but after entering the house and wandering about in an aimless fashion, he then left the house, but upon hearing the door slam, suddenly turned around and acted in a very bizarre manner. For no apparent reason, he fired a shot through the door, and the heir of the house, and finding the two people involved, insisted that they go to bed. He can give no reason as to why he wished them to go to bed, but insisted that this was necessary. Then, in a silly manner, he tried to tie the hands of the man with some ribbon, expecting that these flimsy bands of cloth would be sufficient to restrain a man who was struggling. There was no logic to the way he proceeded, nor was there any indication that he was aware of what he was doing. These doctors did not think that Edward was sane. However, their conclusions were specifically worded to satisfy the monotonous rule. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I think he may. I think the def- Rhodes Kirby Myers had a little bit of part to play in that. That's just me. But they felt that he should be placed in a hospital. The judge reviewed this and he set an arraignment for the following Tuesday. The same day that the judge revealed the report from the doctors, the Martins were laid to rest. Um, their service was being held in the front parlor of their home. Um, and obviously, Stoney and Ruth were pretty much devastated because they. This was just a very tragic thing that has happened. Then, on July 6, 1948, Harry Edward Kilgore was arranged for the murders of Dr. and Mrs. Charles Martin. He entered a plea of not guilty at the time, and Myers did not request a bond. During arraignments in Kentucky, not, not much happens. A lot of people think an arraignment is like a big deal, but it's, it's really not. It's basically when the accused is advised of the crime or crimes that he or she has been charged with. Then the defense will usually ask for a bond if they are detained at that time, but that didn't happen in this case. Usually the judge will then set a continued first appearance or a pretrial conference or something like that um, and send the defendant back to jail, which is exactly what happened here. Meanwhile, Natcher was busy at work with professional divers to attempt to find the murder weapon in the Barren River, but all efforts were unsuccessful. The gun was never found. Uh, he then stated that he, it might have landed or washed up on the shore, so the county offered a $100 reward for whoever found the gun. And throughout the summer, Edward stayed in the jail and was growing even more comfortable there. He read a lot of physics books. He would constantly be, like, trying to solve problems or whatever and reading textbooks. Um, but the once clean-cut, respectable young man soon turned into a dirty and disheveled person. He would often be seen dragging a broom with one hand. A lot of people thought he was building his insanity defense by these behaviors and by his appearance. J.T., or Top Orendor, was one of the prosecutors in this case, also thought that Rhodes Myers was prepping his client to support the insanity defense by coaching him what to do and how to act. Edward basically said nothing to anyone and allowed his facial hair to, and, and the hair on his head to grow exponentially. It was theorized that Edward knew that the best way to avoid the death penalty was through insanity. He was a very intelligent man and probably knew all of this without his attorney coaching him. The grand jury met on September 7, 1948, and indicted Edward on two charges of first-degree murder. After hearing the indictment, Myers petitioned the court to suspend the legal proceedings to await the trial of the, quote, quote-unquote sanity trial. Those are called competency hearings, now for obvious reasons. Little did Myers know was that Stoney and Natcher had found Manfred Shanfarmer Gutmacher. He was a very prominent name in the psychology field, and his resume was long and impressive. When the initial report from the seven doctors was released, Tony and the Commonwealth attorney, Artie Willock, and Top Orendorf met to discuss the insanity plea. They thought that Myers and Kilgore went with this plea, and they wanted to get the opinion of Dr. Gutmacher to really figure out if Kilgore was insane. But Gutmacher was extremely expensive, about $500 a day in 1948, and that's equivalent to about $5,000 a day in today's money. Stoney offered to front the cost because he wanted to see Edward found guilty of these horrendous murders. So the days before the indictment, Dr. Gutmacher interviewed and observed Kilgore for several hours. However, he did not release his findings to the general public, like the other seven doctors did. It could be argued that the seven released their findings to further the public's view of him being insane and to potentially taint future jury members, because everybody who's anybody is going to be watching this stuff unfold. So 
that stuff is naturally going to come out. People are going to talk. So if the seven doctors release their thing, oh, well, he's insane, word's going to get out, and that could taint jury members later on and make them lean more to not guilty based on insanity. But who's to say? I think Guttmacher made a good decision by not releasing his findings to the general public. Privately, he told Orendorf and the rest of the prosecution they thought that Kilgore was faking being insane that he could be convicted. And the sanity hearing began... On September 22, 1948, with the Warren County Circuit Judge John Barrett Rhodes presiding, not to be confused with Rhodes Myers, the attorney. The hearing lasted three days. During his, this hearing, his mother testified that her son was, quote, very crazy. She, he, she also went on to detail the long history of mental illness in the family. The doctors who wrote the initial report testified as well, and the, the stuff about his mother reports is going to come up later. Also during this hearing, is brought into question the weird things that Edward did including eating grass, wearing women's hairpins, and wearing a pink Chanel robe to visit friends. He would often write letters to his friends, and one of these notes had a weird head of a dragon drawing with plants for teeth. The letter, the letter say, who was a, to one of his female friends, he liked to write a lot to his female friends, Jean, you've had, so, you've had, much, psycho you have had much psychology. Look into this paper and see a phase of the mental activity of a childlike fool. I do know, though, that you owe me at least two embraces and two kisses, or am I somehow forgetting that I was not artful enough? I just don't know. This I know. I would like to have a date with you, and if T.G. if ever is reluctant to jump at the snap of your mental lash, remember, I will be glad to lose myself on the redness of your hair. Yes, Jean, the stronger half of me is still sane, but you'd be surprised what goes on in the other half. Kilgore has scratched another part of the letter, but you never did get to see the other half. Doctors examined the note while he was in custody and said this about it. At this point, they think that Kilgore is schizophrenic. Quote, here is a dragon, a horrible-looking figure, with teeth out of which are growing some flowers that are attractive-looking. This man is expressing these drawings of turmoil and the conflict that goes on within himself between these good things and these sinister-looking things. Um, Kilgore said another letter to another female, quote, I have an almost an irresistible impulse to hold you close to my breast and feel your warm blood oozing over my body. Fucking weird. A lady who worked at a librarian, as a librarian at Western found another letter, supposedly written by Edward when he was in jail. He had stepped into a book that had been turned from where he had borrowed it. He said this about a state of mind when he killed the Martins, and he wrote this to his mother. Quote, My life has been a search for contentment. I am sick at heart with disappointment if I cannot separate unhappiness from my life. I can fall in the footsteps of my father. Where is the justice that, must that I must find my life? Continuing through caverns of darkness, not only is mine a life of injustices, but it begets injustice. It's fate so cruel that Mr. and Mrs. Martin were ordained to meet a foul with me. Have you, my dear mother, so lived that you should not re that you should root the life of your latter days, crushed and screaming with sorrow? My face is not that of a monster. My consciousness is that of a de is not that of a demon, and my soul, though now it wonders, belonged in the Christian faith. Yet my life is a monstrosity, an abnormality. Nature abhors maladjustment, so let me her arise and tear me down. Not but a twisted principle will be lost to the world, and alas, behold, justice awakens. Its weary eyes to see the substance of this damp and dreary existence will be surrendered onto the endless cycle and provide opportunity for another life. When this bit of matters relinquished, may it sustain a principle that can find and follow the way of light. That, yeah, I told you he had a penchant for the theatrical. I mean, he's fucking weird. I don't know. Like, I don't think, I don't think he's insane. I, I don't think someone that writes like this is... The argument could be made, I think. But I think he just tries to be flowery just because. Just to be weird. On the final day of the sanity hearing, Dr. Guttmacher took the stand to testify that Edward was not schizophrenic and that he was of sound mind. He cited how many hearings he had been a part of and provided proof of his findings. After 20 minutes of deliberation, just 20, the jury found that Kilgore was sane. But it would be about a year before Edward would face the two murder charges in court. 
After the jury's findings, Rose Mars attempted to petition the court for a new sanity hearing, citing 18 reasons why his client should receive a new hearing, but that was quickly shot down. The trial began on Monday, September 19th, 1948, and this is where things get a little more interesting. Kilgore stated that there was more to the murders than he had previously revealed. He had petitioned that if he were spared the death penalty, he would reveal the true story of what happened and reveal the identity of his accomplice. He stated that he, that he kept quiet about the accomplice to protect him and their friendship. The judge accepted the offer, and this trial went a whopping 33 minutes. So this big old thing that everyone made such a big fucking deal about lasted 33 minutes. Um, and they reached the plea deal. Um, now, the prosecution and the judge determined that they needed to investigate this new story immediately. During his time in jail, because he was still in jail at this time, and he was basically given life imprisonment for both charges. So he was going to be transported to the Edible State Prison, um, or Kentucky State Penitentiary in Edible, um, for the rest of his life, pretty much. Um, until he was eligible for parole. Uh, Kilgore was continuing to enjoy his strange diet of canned peas and corn and V8 juice. A lot of his friends brought them to him. One of these friends was 35-year-old George Melvin Daggett. He is a music, a music professor at Western. Kilgore referred to Daggett as his soulmate and told the court that not only was Daggett the one who came up with this plan, but he, he was the one who killed the Martins. Dun, dun, dun. I was going to leave you guys for cliffhanger on that, but I think that you guys deserve to hear the rest of the story because it, it gets even more wild. Um, after about a week of his anticlimactic trial, Kilgore told the jailer that he wanted to destroy Ruth and Stoney and that he constructed a makeshift ship to do so out of a copper shower valve in his cell that he had fashioned to a knife. George Melvin Daggett was found interrogated for several hours by Natcher and Orendorf, but he didn't receive a charge at the time. Kilgore was brought in front of another grand jury to indict Daggett. During this hearing, Kilgore revealed how he came to meet Daggett. They met in 1946 through a music class at Western. Daggett allegedly told Kilgore that he would help him with his mental issues and also give him piano lessons. He told the grand jury how Daggett outlined the murders and his testimony lasted a little over an hour. Daggett was born in Minneapolis on October 29, 1913. He was a good student, enjoying music, trains, and railroads. He went on to graduate the Institute of Musical Arts in New York and Juilliard. He also taught piano to children. Interestingly enough, he also worked as a psychiatrist psychiatric aid and music therapist in the institution of the living in Connecticut, which was a psych hospital. He was hired by Western in 1945 as a music professor and was named head of the piano division in 1947. Daggett was indicted by the grand jury on September 28, 1949 on the charge of being an accessory before the fact to the willful murders of the Martins. He was also indicted on charges of, quote, demand for a thing of value by menace, in other words, extortion. This charge was based on an incident with Olga Eitner, who was a music teacher at Western. According to Edward, according to Edward, Daggett was having some financial issues. His mother needed surgery. She was diabetic, and she needed an amputation on her foot, and he was kind of stuck with the medical bills. And you don't really make a whole lot as a teacher or professor. He only made, like, $5,000 a year, I think. Uh, he eventually had to borrow about $2,500 from Ella Kilgore. Edward had stated that Daggett had come up with a way to make money as a traveling salesman. They found a shoe salesman just randomly on the street and told him to visit Olga Eitner in her apartment. It was not clear how he got there, but Kilgore and Daggett showed up and took pictures of Mrs. Eitner and the salesman in, quote, compromising positions. Daggett would go on to receive $4,600 from Eitner to keep her keep the pictures under wraps from university officials. I guess she probably would have been fired for something like this as she was unmarried because everything was sexist back then. I don't really know why this was a thing. Um, Daggett reportedly admitted to this scheme, saying that he did this to pay Ella Kilgore back. Edward claimed that the money was the reason for the murders, the murders of the Martins. 
He said in a testimony to the grand jury that he would drive by the Morton residence and plot ways to get their money and how they would use it. Um, here's a quote from the book on the news story. He said that on the night of June 28th, they drove by the Martin house, but were scared off by a barking dog. The plan was to put into horrific motion the next night on June 29th, when he and Daggett were again driving by the Martin house late at night. This time, they stopped. Kilgore said he went to the back door, while Daggett stayed out front. Kilgore broke in using a coat hanger to unlatch the screen door, and started wandering through the massive house looking for the Martin's bedroom. He came to the front door and stepped outside. Suddenly, the door slammed shut behind him. He wheeled around it and accidentally fired a single shot through the door. He then broke it down, and the two men rushed to the bedroom, where Dr. Martin stared, started screaming and fighting. Kilgore said he began hitting Dr. Martin on the head with a flashlight until he was unconscious. Martha Martin was ordered to stay in her bed, which she did. Here, Kilgore's story changed significantly from what had been after his guilty plea in July, when he said Jagged had fired the fatal shots into the Martins. To the grand jury, Kilgore said it was he who did the shooting. Kilgore and Daggett then returned to Colonial Court Apartments after the murders. Um, Kilgore dropped Daggett off, and then that's when Kilgore went to his mother's house in Glasgow. And that's when Kilgore prepared to dispose of the items used in the murder. Quote, Kilgore also declared to the grand jury that Ruth was the only girl he'd ever loved. However, Kilgore said Daggett also had a special place in his heart. We were soulmates, Kilgore said of, his music, of the music professor. I loved him. Daggett was then arrested the day he was indicted. He had no comments to make to the media and reported was very emotional as he sat in jail. He immediately requested an attorney. At the time, Edward had been not been moved to Edible Prison at the time, requested that he and Daggett be placed in the same cell together. To this request, Daggett vehemently refused. When the jailer returned to Kilgore, Kilgore began to cry at that news. Kilgore was shortly moved to the Edible Prison and repeatedly asked to see Daggett, which was denied. This caused Kilgore to be even more emotional. Alice Daggett, who was George's mother, defended her son with everything she had. She said that he'd never fired a gun in his life and that he was harmless and wouldn't hurt anyone. The other person in Daggett's corner was a rookie attorney that was hired as a public defender. He could not afford an attorney because of all the medical bills of his mother, and he just didn't make enough money, so the courts hired uh, Paul Huddleston. Um, he was a minister turned lawyer, and this guy had balls. He had never defended anyone in his entire life. This was his very first trial. He was only 33 years old. Um, a lot of people would not have even taken this case because of the possible homosexual preferences of Daggett and Kilgore. But Huddleston just took it in stride. Like, he was very accepting of the whole thing and just was like, I'm going to defend you and I'm going to get you off for this is basically how he was. He was amazing. Like, I, it's kind of up in the air whether Daggett and Kilgore did it. I think it's completely possible. I honestly don't think that, I don't think that Kilgore was like a mastermind all this. Like, if anything, like, if Daggett wasn't like the, the mastermind of it all, that, then Kilgore probably just was insane. Or not legally insane, but just like was in a frenzy. But honestly, I think there's probably more to this than meets the eye. On January 7, 1950, Kilgore was returned to Bowling Green to testify in the trial against Daggett. The prosecution began after several police officers testified to the arrest, and a Western student told the jury that Kilgore and Daggett were often seen together, but this wasn't unusual. Then banker, banker Max B. Nam took the stand. Quote, Daggett, when he first entered Bowling Green, had rented a room in Nam's house for 18 months. Sometime in February 1948, after Daggett already moved to the Colonial Court Apartments, a 32 caliber gun, Nam said he thought it was a Smith & Wesson, was stolen from his house. The gun had a long nickel-plated barrel and a black handle, he said. It was kept in a little bedside table. The implications were that this 32 caliber gun was the murder weapon. Under cross-examination by Huddleston, Nam admitted that many other people had access to the home, and that Daggett had turned in the key to his home when he left. Daggett, he admitted, always conducted himself as a gentleman. Then, Tom Martin and Monroe County Foner took the stand. He found a gun outside the Kilgore home after his arrest, and it was in a tree. 
wrapped in a sweater and hung from a wire, which would explain the wire found in the car. Despite knowing this could have been the murder weapon, Martin took it home and told no one about it. He claimed that it was stolen by another farm worker and that the gun was never found. And then, good old Harry Edward Kilgore took the stand. Alright, I'm going to read you guys a few pages from this book. i got to flip over to the pages. Oh, Kadoki. Okay. So he said he went to the Colonial Court Apartments about 5 p.m., but George was not there yet. While he waited for Daggett to come home, he had made small talk with Alice Daggett. Around 6 p.m., George arrived, and the trio ate dinner at the apartment. The men and then went for a ride in Kilgore's sister's car. In parentheses, apparently the same vehicle they had gotten from Olga Eitner. I forgot to mention that they had gotten a car from her in addition to $4,600. Returning a short time later. At this point, a trip to the Martin house was not on the agenda. Instead, they went into the Western Music Building. But after seeing lights on indicating that someone else was there, they decided to keep driving. At that point, Kilgore said he swung his car around and headed down the hill from the Western Campus. When they reached downtown, he made a run on Cemetery Road and headed out of town. They once again found themselves outside of the Martin house. This time, Daggett proclaimed, this is the night. As Kilgore stopped on the deserted Cemetery Road in front of the Martin home, Daggett got out at the end of the long driveway. Kilgore then drove the car to a field behind the house and parked it. He climbed out of the car and walked up the path to the back of the house. I saw the dog in the back of the house, Kilgore said. It was lying just beyond the door. I stepped up there and I almost walked on the dog. And then I went around in front of the house to tell Mr. Daggett that I was there and that shortly I would be through the house, I suppose, so that he could be at the front door waiting me and that I went around front and told him. He then went to the back porch to use a piece of wire to poke a hole in a screen door, opened the latch and entered the Martin home. With a flashlight in one hand and the gun in the other, Kilgore made his way through the dark house. When he got to the front door, he opened it, expecting to see his accomplice. But he wasn't there, Kilgore said of Daggett. So I stood there, wondering where he was. By then, Dr. Martin had been awakened. He rushed behind Kilgore and slammed the door shut. Kilgore said the gun discharged accidentally as he was trying to open the door and get back inside. Daggett then appeared out of the darkness, and together they broke open the door and rushed to the Martin bedroom. Kilgore said he began tying up began trying to tie up Dr. Martin, but the doctor broke free. It would not stop struggling. Daggett was the one, Kilgore claimed. He beat Dr. Martin to submission with a flashlight and the sand-filled sock. They then tied the hands of both Martins. And when Dr. Martin again got his hands free and started hollering, Kilgore said Daggett told him, shoot them and let's get out of here. Kilgore then admitted that he fired the shots that killed the Martins. So, first he said that he did it, then he said that Daggett did, then he said that he did it. So he's like all over the place. He then untied the couple's hands, apparently leaving behind the short piece of ribbon, later found Dr. Martin's hands. Kilgore said as they were leaving the bloodstained bedroom, he stuck a knife in Dr. Martin's head for good measure. The pair then left the house, and Kilgore dropped Daggett off at his apartment before Kilgore drove to Glasgow. Um, so, he told everyone that he had stolen the gun from the Nom home, that, um, he said the Daggett had done that, had stolen the gun. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm trying to see... Alright, here's another thing that I think is interesting from the book. Um, in the event that Stonewall Martin married Ruth McKinney, we planned the destruction of first Dr. Mrs. Martin, Kilgore said. Stoney Martin was to be killed next. Then, according to Kilgore, he would marry Ruth and they would inherit the Martin fortune. So that was their initial plan. Daggett would profit financially since he would live in the Martin house, Kilgore testified. The trio, Kilgore said, would then live a life of ease. In response to the question about the nature of their relationship, Kilgore again called Daggett his soulmate. And on another occasion, said, I loved him. He said that he was closer to Daggett than he was with his own mother. These statements of affection for Daggett would be widely reported in newspaper and radio accounts of the trial. At the time, there was little doubt that the implication was that Kilgore and Daggett were involved in a homosexual relationship, a premise that added much to the sensationalism surrounding this case. As for as much as Scott's state of mind, Kilgore testified he followed as time that he was two different people, and they behaved differently when he was with Daggett. Kilgore also delivered a, quote, bombshell, as reporters wrote at the time. When he claimed that he told Ruth about his plans to kill her future in-laws, 
But he said she didn't know he was serious about the plot. Ruth played no part in the crime, he said. He, she had not agreed to marry him after the Martins were killed. He said he loved Ruth. He said he not disclosed Daggett's role in the Martin murders because of a mutual agreement to look out for each other and his affection for the music professor. He said that the money Daggett had been sending his mother was part of the arrangement to hide Daggett's involvement in the crime. Kilgore denied that he changed his story and it played Daggett in an effort to get out of prison earlier. I don't much believe that whatever this may help me in making parole would be worth having to give up Daggett's music and the blight it would be on, my, on his life, he said. Daggett at times could not hide what he thought of Kilgore's testimony, smiling a stifling laughter. He would also emit snorts of derision, according to a report. When Huddleston started to cross-examine Kilgore, the defense attorney prodded him to reveal more about his thoughts of killing other people. For a long time, I had felt a tendency to kill a member of the opposite sex, he admitted. I knew that I'd feel better if I killed somebody. He said he had fantasized about killing women, chopping up their bodies, and feeding them to hogs. And again, he had the first urges when he was in California. Um, Many times I thought within a part of my mind of destroying girls. There have been times when I would sit, said Kilgore, who let the thought trail off. It's hard for me to find now just how I did feel about these girls, just how these thoughts would come up. But I know that there have been times when I was considerably moved to bring some peculiar feeling out of myself by destroying girls. I wanted to see them dead like statues up in the cemetery that stand up on the monument. He did outline another plan to kill Daggett's sister-in-law. And um, Kilgore said that as Daggett was talking about some difficulty he had with his sister-in-law, it just occurred to me to kill her. And then he was going to chop her body up and flush her body down the toilet. And then Kilgore apparently was laughing when he made that statement. So they had all the they had made other plans like to kill the husband of Daggett's landlady so that Daggett could marry the widow. Um, then they were going to kill the woman and tear the widow's fortune. Um, Daggett laughed out loud with that. They were also planning on killing Olga Eitner, going to Kilgore. Um, and the defense attorney asked Kilgore if it was true that he intended to use the axe found in his room with by police to kill his landlady. Why no, Kilgore replied matter-of-factly. We had gotten that axe to kill Daggett's brother with. Um, but this is what something that really, um, that really got me. Huddleston then asked a question that, quote, jarred the courtroom, according to a reporter. What was the name of the man you killed in Los Angeles? Orendorf immediately objected to that question, and the judge quickly just sustained the challenge. Um, so, he brought that up, I think, for shock value, just to kind of put some reasonable doubt in the judge's mind, um, in the jury's mind, really, but he... He denied killing a baby in Los Angeles, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did, to be honest with you. Um, after the grueling testimony, Kilgore's mother and sister then took the stand. They stated that the music professor held Edward under his spell, so that he was pretty much infatuated with Daggett. They told the jury that Edward was normal until he met Daggett. Under cross-examination, Ella became hostile to Paul Huddleston because he made her repeat what she had said at the Sandy hearing and talk about the mental illness that ran in her family. And finally, Daggett took the stand. He was shaken and nervous, and had also did a good job of guiding him through the testimony. So I'm going to read you some more from this book. Um, well, let's see. Daggett said Kilgore often spoke of killing girls who rebuffed his advances and feed their bodies to the hogs. Kilgore, Daggett testified, had also told him that plans to kill various people who were in his way, including the Martins and Stoney. Daggett admitted that at various times Kilgore had discussed with him plans to kill others, among them Kilgore's landlady and members of Daggett's family, including Alice Daggett and George's brother and his wife, and even their three-year-old son. When Huddleston asked Daggett to describe Kilgore's plans to kill Alice Daggett, the music professor began to sob. He said through tears, Kilgore came to me and said it would be simple. It'd be a simple matter to smother her in her pillow as she slept in her bed. The music professor said he did not believe the talk. I didn't take him seriously enough, Daggett said. He said when he read about the Martin killings in the Daily News on June 30th, he was aghast. Daggett said he learned that Kilgore would just as soon kill a person as look at him. He admitted it, and Kilgore were together the night before the murders. 
He said Kilgore came to his apartment in a distraught state of mind and asked him to take him to his western studio and play music for him. Dagan agreed when they got to the music building, the lights were on in the office of Dr. Weldon Hart, director of the western music department. Dagan said he didn't want to disturb Dr. Hart, so they drove around downtown for a few minutes. They returned to his apartment, where they talked for a few minutes more. Kilgore then left around 11.15 or 11.30 p.m., and Daggett went to bed, rising at about 7.30 a.m. for his 8 a.m. class. Daggett said he did not learn of the Martin murders until he saw the report in the Daily News. He admitted the pair had driven around that night, but said they were never they never went down a cemetery road. As for his relationship with Kilgore, Daggett said he was interested in helping Kilgore ease his depression and dark moods, utilizing the therapy skills he had learned at the Institute of Living. Daggett said he would listen to play light and gay waltzes for Kilgore, who normally liked to listen to funeral marches. He said at the time they were fast friends and that Kilgore, when it came to music, was exceptionally talented. Daggett said he brought the, can ve brought the canned vegetables to Kilgore in jail and sent his mother small amounts of money periodically because he felt morally obligated to Ella Kilgore previously loaned $2,500. Under cross-examination by Orendorf, Daggett stuck, stuck with a version of events he had just relayed to his lawyer. Orendorf asked Daggett if he only needed binoculars, such as the one supposedly used to spy on the Martin house. He said he did not. When the music professor's testament completed, Alice Daggett then entered the courtroom, aided by a metal walker. George, who had not seen his mother several months, was allowed to hug her before the, she took the witness stand. Um, she testified that she knew her son and Kilgore were together the night of June 29th until sometime before midnight, but that George was home with her for the rest of the night. She said he was a light sleeper, or she was a light sleeper, and would have known that George had left. She said her son was capable of committing murder, um, or capable of committing the crimes he was accused of. George wouldn't kill a fly, she said. And she did say that had some antique opera glasses, which could have been used um, um, for, like, as binoculars. Uh, the next day, two more witnesses took the stand for the defense. Ben Logan, a state probation officer who worked in Bowling Green, had visited Kilgore, and the man, and that's the man that Kilgore showed the knife to and told him he would kill Stoney and his wife. The jailer was also called to the stand and admitted that Kilgore did cause some trouble and was well-behaved overall. Huddleston decided not to call Ruth Martin to testify, and the reasons are unknown. It's possible that he just wanted to focus on the crazy killer who was Kilgore. Um, Orendorf ended by giving a 25-minute closing argument where he called Kilgore's testimony one of the most sordid, horrible, and revolting stories ever told in a Warren County courtroom. But he still thought that Dag was the mastermind and that Kilgore was the tool. He posited that it would, have, it would have had to take two men to commit such crimes efficiently with the limited tools that they had. He said that, da that Dag had dominated Kilgore and that Kilgore had nothing to gain by turning on his friend. So why wouldn't he? So why would he lie? He was not promised anything. His testimony would not increase his chance of getting parole early. Now Huddleston's closing arguments were two hours long, and I'm going to read you some more from the book. Uh, let's see. Let me find it. Do -do -do -do. Okay. This diabolical story was hatched in the brooding mind of Edward Kilgore, who was incarcerated in the Warren County Jail for 15 months alone. Huddleston said. He said Kilgore, who was called a crazed man, believed his chance for parole would be enhanced if he implicated someone else in the crime. He noted that no one came close to corroborating Kilgore's version of events except for his mother and sister. He also tried to elicit some sympathy from jurors, calling the music professor a poor man, pointing out the imposing legal battery he faced, including Orendor, and the several private attorneys that Stoney Martin had hired to aid the prosecution. I completely agree with how he's doing this. Huddleston said his client's case was so important for the Commonwealth that even the illusions rose the illustrious Rose K. Myers was seated at the prosecutor's table. Myers jumped to his feet and protested the characterization of his presence. He said he had been hired to represent the interests of Kilgore's mother, Ella. Huddleston also asked the jury to remember Kilgore's demeanor when he asked about killing a man in Los Angeles. While no evidence was presented that Kilgore had killed someone else, Huddleston knew that if the jury believed that he had perhaps committed or even contemplated a murder years before he met Daggett, it would cast doubt on the prosecution's contention that Daggett was, ca was the catalyst for Kilgore's murderous fantasies. 
At the conclusion of the closing statements, Judge Rosen started the jury that they could find the former music professor guilty and then sentence him to either lock the prisoner in the electric chair or acquit him. After two hours, they could not reach a verdict. So after another hour and a half, they were deadlocked. So um, one source claimed it was 8 to 4 for conviction. The other source said it was 9 to 3 for acquittal. So Orndorff was like, I'm going to put you on trial again. Um, after the first trial ended, Dagger was able to be released on a $5,500 bond that a few communion members had fronted for him. Um, I'm going to read some more from the book. Um, because this kind of, I feel like this, for the second trial that Daggett was under, I feel like the book kind of just does a really good job of like explaining all of this. And then I'm going to read you the appeal that happened after the second trial. Um, so, or I may just like paraphrase for you from the book. So during the second trial, um, let's see here. So here's a letter that was um, written in the fall of 1947 from Ella Kilgore to the music professor regarding a rift between her family and Daggett. Quote, when you and Edward seem to be such dear friends, I was more than willing to help you in your financial strain, according to Edward's judgment. But now that you have shown your ungratefulness to Edward, I do not feel as I once did. The letter reads in part. Um, let's see. Um, Huddleston pretty much stated to the, stayed to the regular thing for the um, stuff that he had done before. And then Harry Edward Kilgore was called to the stand again after a couple more witnesses. Um, let's see here. And I mean, Ella's, Ella Martin Booker, which was Edward's sister, also testified that Daggett came to the home very often. Um, and after Edward was arrested, he asked her to arrange for the music professor to visit him in jail, which he did, which is kind of weird. I don't know if he was just doing that for moral support or what. Um... So he's now saying that he, that under Daggett's direction, um, Harry said that he shot the Mars while Daggett held the flashlight, and then Dr. Martin fell off the bed after being shot. Um, and again, he's saying that we did this for money. And then they said that they planned to kill a bunch of people. Um, pretty much the same thing that was, um, that's pretty much everything else that, that was said, like in the first trial. Um, there was also this thing with Hutchison asked Kilgore if he'd experimented with using dry ice to kill a person. Kilgore admitted that he had. I had brought up the matter of destroying a person by suffocating them with carbon dioxide or dry ice, he said. He elaborated, saying he thought of a scene to fill a hot water bottle with dry ice and hold the bottle to a person's face, suffocating them as the dry ice evaporated. He said he believed that the method of killing someone would go undetected in an autopsy. Um, so that was kind of weird. So they kept on like going over all this stuff, um, and then he Huddleston then asked Daggett when he took the stand. Did you kill Dr. Martin and Mrs. Martin? Or did you help plan it? Did you have any part of the murder? And he said no. Um, and let's see. And it hit, Daggett also said that Kilgore had once shared his plans to kill the Martins um, with him, but he never thought he never thought he would go through with it. So after all that new evidence that was, well, there wasn't really any substantial new evidence that came from all that. There was just a few interesting things that I found in that. Um, so this is interesting. Here's a quote from the book. Judge Rosen ordered a 15-minute recess so that both sides could prepare for closing arguments. After the recess, Rhodes sent Huddleston to his bench, where he informed him that, as the insistence of the prosecutors, more jury instructions would be read, allowing for a verdict of voluntary manslaughter. That's not what he was charged with. This is just weird. Huddleston protested vehemently to no avail. The manslaughter charge was a way for the jury to find Daggett guilty of something, even if they did not believe the state had proven Daggett was guilty of willful burner beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Uh, because of the stigma of him being accused of being gay, Paul Hudson was convinced they were going to convict him of something. Um, so he basically, he literally was like challenging the jury to find Daniel guilty of murder or of nothing, and then use the words of Patrick Henry, give him liberty or give him death. So he was like on his shit with this case. Like I give props to this man. Like if you think Daggett did it, I think he could have. I think it's pretend. I don't really know what I think about this after reading all this information, but I honestly think that Daggett probably had a part in it. But his attorney was on his shit. Um, he kept on saying that his client was an innocent man, but the the issue was that the the jury found um, that George Melvin Daggett was guilty of manslaughter was sentenced to 11 years in the penitentiary. So, that was not good. Um, nobody really liked that because, again, he wasn't charged with that. So, you either need to find him guilty of murder or find him guilty of nothing. So, they just, it was just so awful. So, he asked for a new trial, Huddleston did. And then they ended up filing a, an, an appeal. And this guy had never written an appeal before, ever, in the history of ever. Um, and this appeal was probably one of the best written appeals that most people had ever seen before. It was very, it was full of prose, and I really want to read you guys this, um, this appeal, and it, it's kind of long, so I may not read all of it, but I feel like you need to hear some of it just to know, like, how, how good of an appeal this was. Um, this was, it's very famous. I don't know if you can find it anywhere else. The original brief is about 16,000 words long, so this version below that they use in the book is condensed. Okay. So, before the Court of Appeals of Kentucky, fall term 1950, an appeal from Warren Circuit Clerk, brief for appellant, preface may it please the court. This is the appeal of a man who is punished for something he did do by con he did do by conviction for something he did not do. It may eliminate the matter if you review the history of his case. A sense of horror swept over Warren County at five minutes past eight o'clock in the morning of June 30, 1948, when a local radio bulletin reported the deaths of Dr. and Mrs. C.B. Martin. The announcer said the elderly couple had been discovered an hour earlier in a bedroom of their palatial home on the outskirts of Bowling Green. They had been shot, stabbed, and bludgeoned. There were signs of a struggle. The motive was not apparent. People listened avidly for more details, and the radio kept them informed as the story developed. There was a report at 9.30 a.m. that a definite suspect was being sought. By 11 o'clock, it was generally known that Edward Kilgore had been taken to custody at his home in, Bowling in Glasgow and returned to Bowling Green for questioning. Then came the climax. A bulletin at 12.35, Kilgore has confessed. Edward Kilgore, a former student of Western State College, had dictated and signed a statement relating in detail how and why he killed Dr. Martin and his wife. Um, the Park City Daily News came off the press at 4.30 p.m. with the opening paragraph of his story set in 10-point type. Harry Edward Kilgore, 25, Glasgow, a jilted suitor, Wednesday morning sent a confession to the murder of Dr. Mrs. C.B. Martin, Cemetery Road, aged parents of his rival, County Attorney William H. Natcher said. The confession was signed at 12.35 o'clock, approximately 10 hours after the murders believed to have been committed. Dr. Martin was shot three times, while his wife had been shot once. The physician was shot through the neck and head, and Mrs. Martin through the head. Kilgore intimated in his confession, Mr. Natcher said, that he went to the Martin residence to have it out with Dr. And Mrs. Martin. Parents of Stonewall Martin, 52, married June 23rd in Russellville, Kentucky, to Ruth McKinney, 18, a neighbor. Again, that age range is really stupid. 52 and 18, well. The young man was quoted by the county attorney as saying the Martins were wealthy and had enticed the girl, whom he loved from him. Another byline feature in the same issue of the paper elaborated on Kilgore's motives. A slim, wistful-eyed youth who had said he had been disappointed all my life with relations with girls, who had charged formally early Wednesday afternoon with the willful murder of Dr. and Mrs. C.B. Martin. It all ties in. Goes back so far. I love her. Harry Edward Kilgore, 25, former Western College student from Glasgow, said in confessing the murder of the couple about 2 o'clock Wednesday morning in their southern colonial home on the cemetery road. 
The Martins had all the money, and I know that the boy must have enticed Ruth to marry Cobra said. I tried to get Ruth not to marry him. I had been going with her for several months. I loved her, he added. It was a time between the discovery of the bodies and a conversation last Saturday night Sheriff J. Baldly Davenport had with a man whose identity was not disclosed that brought the quick apprehension of Kilgore. Davenport said that the man had told him, There's a boy mighty worked up over Stonewall Martin and Ruth McKinney getting married. Kilgore was confined in the Warren County Jail. Um, I'm going to uh, skip over that a little bit. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to skip over a little bit to his argument. It has been widely said that the party is charged with crimes and need protection of the law against unjust convictions quite as often as the public needs against groundless acquittals. We respectfully suggest that Professor George Melvin Daggett needs protection here against an unjust conviction in Warren Circuit Court. And we suggest further, the Commonwealth also needs protection in, this, in, in the instant case, lest the people of Kentucky themselves commit a crime, a crime against humanity. Our argument is found upon three major predicates, embracing all ten points raised in the motion and grounds for a new trial. Proposition of these. First, the verdict was not sustained by sufficient evidence. Second, the instructions were erroneous and preju- prejudicial. And third, the verdict was the product of irresponsible jury caprice and prejudice. These premises, or any of them, will support a conclusion of reversible error in the trial below. Let us examine the propositions. The Commonwealth produces, produced Edward Kilgore, the chief accuser of George Daggett, but Kilgore admitted his own complicity in the murders of Mr. and Mrs. Martin. Indeed, he stood convicted of the crime. So any inquiry into the sufficiency of the evidence naturally raised two questions. Was the testimony of Edward Kilgore worthy of belief? And was the story of Kilgore, the accomplice, corroborated by any other evidence tending to connect the appellant with the offense? It will appear that both questions will be answered in the negative. Um, I'm going to skip over that. We kind of already talked about that. Um, da, 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 da. We talked about that already. I mean, he just keeps going on and on and on and on. It talks about the Catholic of Montillado. That's one of um, Edward Kilgore's favorite um, Edgar Allan Poe stories, and that's where he kind of got the whole Los Angeles murder thing because he thought he was being jilted by a friend. Um, let's go back. Uh, I'm not going to read the rest of this. I just wanted to read you guys some of it because it's it's a pretty famous um, it's a pretty famous brief. So if you guys can find this appeal and read the whole thing, I would encourage it. Um, but Huddleston's appeal actually worked. Um, Daggett's conviction was overturned and he ended up not having to face a third trial. He was released from prison just after just a year of serving time. He stayed out of the spotlight for the most part. Um, so I'm going to kind of read you some of the aftermath from the book. Let me find him. I promise we're almost done with this, you guys. I just found this, like, this case so fascinating. Um, in his journal, Natcher never directly addressed his opinion on whether Daggett was involved in the murders, but he clearly thought Kilgore and the music professor were partners in crime, or at least in misbehaviors. It later developed that Daggett was a sex maniac, and he and Kilgore paraded around during the nighttime committing all kinds of gruesome pranks, wrote Natcher, who then outlines the bizarre extortion scheme against Olga Eitner. In investigating the Martin case, I also found out that Ms. Eitner was just one of a few women who had gotten into the tr- clutches of Daggett and Kilgore. Unfortunately, Natcher did not offer any details regarding the pair's alleged misdeeds. Daggett, a lifelong bachelor, never did move on from teaching at a junior high school and performing for civic clubs and churches around Detroit. He died of a heart attack at the age of 52 in 1965. Sometime after leaving Bowling Green, Eitner married a World War II veteran named Thomas Schottner and moved to San Francisco. She also died at the age of 62 in 1965. In 1965, that was the year that Harry Edward Kilgore was released from prison. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, it. this just keeps going on and on, guys. He was released from prison on parole when he was 42. He'd only spent 17 years behind bars. He had first appealed for parole in 1957, but it was denied. On June 7, 1965 was when he was released. The state parole board chairman said that Kilgore had an exceptionally good record at the reformatory 
Other officials agreed with this, such as psychiatrists and other prison officials. Nonetheless, Nuzzer's really shocked the community. Part of his restrictions were that he was not to reside in the Warren or the surrounding counties for five years. Meanwhile, Ruth, Ruth McKinney became widowed. Stoney passed away in February 2nd, 1957, of a lengthy illness. His cause of death officially is a cerebral hemorrhage caused by hypertension, hypertensive heart disease. They did not have any children, were only married for nine years. Ruth continued to live in the homeless cemetery road. Um, so, um, it is said that Ruth and Edward got together later on. They, it wasn't immediately apparent. But in 2019, the, the guy that wrote this book tracked down the youngest of her three sons from her second marriage when she married uh, somebody else. I don't know who she married. Um, it was just super, super weird. Um, and then the, apparently this whole mystery was pretty much solved like later on because they did end up getting together. So this is the chapter 16. It's very short. Um and I'm just going to read this to you because I feel like you guys need to need to hear this kind of stuff because this is wild. 30 years after the Martin murders, a tall gray-haired man stood out of the mobile home on the northern outskirts of Bowling Green. Trailing him was his large mutt he had named Bigum. He had gotten Bigum when the dog was just a puppy in exchange for some work he had done for a neighbor. Everyone around the mobile home park knew that the man everyone called Harry was the person to see if he needed something electronic repaired. Other than that, Harry largely stayed to himself. It was spring, and the grass outside the mobile home was littered with golden dandelions. Harry bent down, his long gray beard nearly scraping the top of the grass. He plucked a handful of dandelions from the ground. Then he ate them. At some point, shortly after Stonewall Martin's death, Ruth had married a businessman named Sam Humphreys, whom she had met in Bowling Green. They had three sons before the divorce in the, divorce in the early 70s. Ruth spent her time between Kentucky and Florida, and it was there that she reunited with Harry Edward Kilgore a few years after his parole, according to Ruth's youngest son, Eric Humphreys. The meeting came in 72 or 73 in Apopka, Florida, where they met in a car parked in a drugstore parking lot. The pair just exchanged pleasantries, and Eric Humphreys, who was just about five years old, was sitting in the backseat of the car. But they soon were seeing each other regularly, dividing their time between Florida and South Central Kentucky. Humphreys said he and his family even lived with Kilgore for a few years at the Bowling Green Mobile Home Park in the late 70s. By then, the city was at the tail end of an unprecedented two-decade lawless spree that earned the city the name Little Chicago. The local group of criminals were making money from illegal alcohol sales to the surrounding dry counties for a massive multi-state car theft ring and anything else that could produce revenue. Um, in this chaotic atmosphere, Kilgore faded into the background. While Murder Mansion was still a landmark, the details of what had occurred there had rescinded into opaque memories. Locals had too many new murders making headlines to probe once in nearly a quarter of a century before. Perhaps in a quest for some anonymity, Kilgore had taken to calling himself Harry by then, as opposed to Edward, as he previously known. Um, Humphreys had said Harry had been close had one close friend in Florida, but they had a falling out shortly before Harry's death. Kilgore had few other friends, and even those he had, did have apparently did not know about his connection to Bowling Green's most infinite crime. It seemed for both Ruth and Kilgore the plan was to put it behind them and become normal people, Eric Humphrey said. At the time, Ruth's sons did not know the full story of their relationship. We didn't understand what Kilgore had done, Eric Humphrey said, but as some extended family members apparently did. They were dead set against him being around the family, Humphrey said. They hated him. It was around the time of Ruth's death that her sons found out about Kilgore's past. They also learned that Ruth had forfeited much of the Martin fortune when she married their father. Between his marriage to Ruth in June 1948 and Kilgore's trial in September 1949, Stonewall Martin filed a will in March 1949. The will stipulated that Ruth would inherit most of the estate as long as she did not remarry. I think Stoney had a little bit. He, he, he was smart. The estate, according to the will, was substantial. A cemetery road home was surrounding 225 acres. 
241 acres northeast of Bowling Green, 661 acres of land in Oklahoma, which splendid prospects for oil according to the will, and an unspecified amount of cash, stocks, bonds, and securities. If Ruth may marry to die, the will stipulate that most of the assets will go to the independent order of Odd Fellows, a fraternal service organization. Specifically, the will called for the Martin home to be used for the children and members of the Independence Order of Odd Fellows, and that place shall remain and always be known as the C.B. Martin home. And she did remarry. So the entire estate was actually valued at the time at more than $100,000, but about a million dollars in today's money. Um, so yeah, I honestly think that Ruth has something to do with it. Like, Kilgore said that he told her about it, and she, like, wasn't really into it, but I think she was. And I think Stoney, like, caught on to it because he was like, I'm going to file a will, and you can't get remarried. So I think he, I think he's smarter than he looked. Um, one thing I want to say, um, Humphrey said his mother never directly discussed her involvement, if any, in the Martins murders. Humphrey said even now he's at 50-50 in her involvement. I don't know if we will ever get the full story. One thing he's sure of, while, he always, while she always described Cougar as a friend, they were in love, Humphrey said. He was always head over heels in love with her. When asked if the feeling was mutual, he did not hesitate to answer. Definitely. And uh, Ruth died on October 24, 2017, at age 88 in Apopka. And her body was cremated. She also suffered dementia in the last 20 years of her life. So, what do you guys think about all that? I think that there was a lot more people involved. I think if, I think Daggett and Kilgore had a scheme. Because I don't think that Kilgore was... I think Kilgore was intelligent, but not, like, having the street smarts to do this job by himself. So, I think that Ruth and... Um, I think Ruth and Daggett had something to do with it. But that's just me. There's a couple of theories that are in the bag, but I'm not going to read those to you. You guys can look at this book if you want to. The book goes into so much more detail, and I've been, like, rambling on long enough. So let us know what you think about this. It's pretty awesome. Um, check us out on all our social media. Hopefully Sal will be back next time. And peace out, bros.